Welcome to Mainly History, your go-to podcast for conversations about mostly Maine and mainly history. I'm your host, Ian Saxine. The American Revolution transformed several million British subjects into American citizens. But what rights came with citizenship? Not everyone agreed. One key question that New Englanders played an outsized role in grappling with dealt specifically with the issue of women's rights in the New Republic. The vocabulary of rights for women took on new prominence and urgency during the revolutionary years. As we'll see, conversations about women's rights and citizenship were bound up with debates over the nature of citizenship itself. In some ways, those debates have persisted into our own day. And the relationship between the creation of the United States and the expansion of rights for different classes of citizens was far from clear-cut. To take one example, certain scholars have even argued that some women were better off as British subjects than as American citizens. Today's guest has written, if not the book, then at least my favorite book on the subject. And I can't think of a better person to speak to about these topics. I couldn't come up with any good wordplay for today's introduction. Maybe because I'm still getting over how much we complimented New Jersey. Let's do this. guest today is Rosemarie Zagari, professor of history at George Mason University. She is the author of a number of excellent books on early American history. My personal favorite and one I recommend to everybody is Revolutionary Backlash, Women and Politics in the Early American Republic. Rosie, welcome to Mainly History. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you. It is such a pleasure. I teach Revolutionary Backlash whenever I can. It is my absolute favorite book to teach early American politics. And so it is such a thrill to be speaking with you today. One of the topics that that are noted for exploring is the question of what the American Revolution meant for different classes of citizens. And I think that your work is really important to help us think through the question of the relationship between the political struggle for independence of the United States and then the different social changes that took place at various times. To put another way, the expansion of rights for different classes of people. And so I was hoping that you could help us think through some of that today. Some scholars have argued that at least some women were better off as subjects than as citizens, a contention that would probably surprise modern audiences. And so why is that? Well, I think there's been a tendency among historians to rethink the whole colonial and revolutionary era in light of recent scholarship and to see that in many ways, having a monarch who was the ultimate protector and guardian of all the people meant that 
protection was not subject to the whims of a capricious or even prejudiced majority of voters. And so there's some scholars who think that Native Americans were better off under a monarch than under, you know, a, a Republican form of government. Women, I'm not sure that you would, I would agree with that at all. I think that one of the problems that we've had in thinking about women in the revolutionary period is that after the revolution was over, except for one notable case that I hope we'll talk about later in New Jersey. Oh, yes. Did, did not get a lot of political rights. They didn't get the right to vote or hold public office. And so historians look at the revolution, have looked at the revolution and said, you know, the women didn't do anything to improve women's political status. And I, I think that's a misguided way of looking at it. And I think it may be true, like in terms of Native Americans, that once the revolution occurred, that the Native Americans were subject to the onslaught of white settlers that the federal government supported and encouraged. But with women, I see important changes, although not as obviously in the electoral sphere. Before the revolution in Britain and in colonial North America, women had very few legal and political rights. Under this doctrine called coverture, women were considered first to be under the guardianship of their fathers. And then when they got married, and it was presumed that almost all adult women would get married, they would be under the guardianship of their husbands. And so that meant that they couldn't sue or be sued in court. Married women couldn't own property. They had uh, no legal standing of their own. They were basically subject to their, um, the patriarchs in their, in their families. And so that didn't change officially after the revolution. But what we see happening during the revolution is that women started to get involved at men's behest in a variety of ways in political activities. Now, these were not casting votes or holding public office, but they were the political activities in the 1760s and 70s where women joined with men to protest against British tyranny and form, you know, a resistance movement among women to do things like boycott tea that was imported from Great Britain as a way of punishing British merchants or to make their own clothing using materials that were spun in America rather than imported from abroad or uh, to sign in a few cases documents publicly announcing their support of the revolutionary movement, these non-importation agreements. And we know about this because there were many newspapers at this time that included poems and essays written to appeal to women, written specifically to the ladies and asking mm -hmm. for their support of these resistance movements against Britain. And we also see the emergence of a few female authors at this time, especially a woman named Mercyotis Warren from Massachusetts and another person from Massachusetts, Judith Sargent Murray, 
who actually wrote articles and pamphlets and plays supporting the revolutionary movement. So women start to get their voice during the resistance movement prior to the revolution and during the revolution itself. And this movement, I think, empowered women. That is, before they were politically invisible and they were not recognized as political actors in any sense. But in this lead up to the revolution, male political leaders realized that in many important ways, having the support of women would be crucial to having a unified front against Great Britain and to making, for example, these non-importation agreements successful since women were the consumers of the families. And so this was a really, really important step in shaping women's identities and at least among middling to upper-class white women helping to give them a sense of their own political agency or power. Now, again, this is not being allowed to vote or hold public office. It's not traditional political power, but it's a recognition of their political agency. And I think what we see coming out of that is among men and women, not universally, but among white middle to upper middle classes, a growing awareness of women's potential to make contributions to the polity and especially to a Republican form of government. Building on what you've said, if we focus in on this revolutionary transformation, this is something that we talk about in in college courses and whatnot, but I think that among the, the general public is still not as well understood. Fundamentally, the American Revolution transforms the residents of the 13 colonies from subjects to citizens. And that transformation comes with certain legal assumptions. I think today, most Americans view a subject as somebody with no rights. And so therefore, why would anybody want to be a subject, right? Uh, But could you perhaps explain that, that legal transformation from a late 18th century perspective? and what that change of subject to citizen meant for a woman like Mercy Otis Warren, for example. Yes, I think this is a a crucial transformation that a lot of Americans glide over and they use use citizen uh, even when they're talking about a monarchy. And subjects have their primary allegiance to a monarch. And that's what was true in colonial America. Now, there were 13 representative assemblies in the colonies where the male voters in those 13 colonies elected representatives, but the the colonies did not elect representatives to parliament, you know, and that's one with the sticking points when parliament started taxing them. Right. Um, So the issue when of the transition from subject to citizen is the change from a, a government where the, the people's primary allegiance is to a monarch and then to the, to the state, to the, to the nation. And in a Republican form of government, sovereignty lies with the people themselves. Republic is the Republic in the sense that, you know, American revolutionaries used it. It's not a political party. It is a reference to a form of government in which the people, however you want to define the electorate, the people, elect 
their representatives. And it is a representative form of government. And so this big transition that occurs, the transformation politically during the revolution is that we go from a monarchy to 13 republics. And then in 1789, we go to under the new, new US constitution, a form of government in which there is one republic comprehending the 13 states. So 13 republics within one large republic. So that's when this transformation from subject to citizen is really broadened and changed in another way. In any case, so citizens then have greater responsibilities for maintaining their rights and privileges and liberties, it is said, than in, in subjects of a monarchy. Because again, under a monarchical form of government, the king is supposed to be the ultimate guardian and protector of the people's rights. But in a Republican form of government, all the people have a responsibility to be virtuous and vigilant and to monitor how the legislatures are handling the legislation and passing laws and whether they are preserving the people's rights and liberties. And because during the revolution, women had played a role in the resistance movements and then in, by supporting the revolutionary movement, it was understood by many people in the post-revolutionary decades that women should continue to have a role to play in this new Republican form of government. Again, small r Republican. Right. And so based on their experiences during the revolution, both male and female writers and authors began to see the need to educate women more broadly and widely to help them become good citizens, even if they were non-voting citizens, and to make sure that in raising the future generations, they would inculcate patriotism and loyalty to this new nation state, the new United States of America. So I think education for women was one of the big takeaways that ordinary people came out of the revolution thinking about and realizing that you know, women have a role to play in making this new Republican government a success, that all people, whether or not they could vote, and this is true of non-voting white males as well, need to make sure that they are virtuous and vigilant and protective of their rights because a Republican government is a government of the people based on the consent of the governed. So one word that I think didn't come up yet, it plays a, a role in your work and other scholarship like Kathleen Duvall's Independence Lost, where she looks at different people's experiences on the Gulf Coast in this era, is independence and the question of the idea of a person's independence and its centrality for being a good citizen. You've written about this uh, and other scholars have touched on this as well. If you could maybe expand on this for our listeners, why was it so important for a citizen to be independent in order to be virtuous and good? And what would Americans in, in 1790 or so understand independence to mean in terms of a, a person? Yes, well, that's a really key point. So before the revolution, 
both in Britain and in British North America, political rights were attached primarily to the ownership of property. And in this case, primarily to the ownership of land. And it was thought that land guaranteed political independence and independence of thought. There were a lot of people in Britain who opposed lowering the property qual uh, qualification for voting because it was thought that people without property, men, white males without property, would be dependent. That is, they would have jobs on which they that they depended on, you know, a landlord, or they would, you know, they would lease their land instead of owning it. And so a landlord might dictate the way they voted, or they might be artisans who didn't own land and who might be subject to selling their vote if they were poor or, you know, in, in financial straits. So, you know, coming into and immediately after the revolution, there was this idea that independence was tied to, to political rights, and it gave people the freedom to exercise their political will. Now, I think one important point here is that, and people don't really understand this, is that even before the revolution, a majority of white males in the North American British colony were eligible to vote. That doesn't mean that they always did, but they were eligible. So they did meet the property qualifications for voting in the various colonies. And so it didn't take, you know, Andrew Jackson or the Jacksonian Revolution to make this possible. But what did happen with the revolution is an increasing awareness, first of all, that, that soldiers who, who fought in the American Revolution should be eligible to vote that men, artisans who may not have owned property but, and lived in cities should be eligible to vote. And so there is a beginning during and after the revolutionary era of an expansion of the franchise, an expansion of voting for white males. And so you begin to see a separation between this idea of dependence as a qualification for political rights and, and voting. And we know that by the 1820s, in fact, in most states, white males, the, the, the vast majority of all white males were enfranchised. And so I think this divergence is really important because it implies that, you know, property ownership is not key to being able to exercise your political will or your political agency in the electoral realm. Now, that's really important for women because, as I mentioned, you know, almost all adult women were married, and that meant that they couldn't own property on their own. And so they were, by definition, then dependent. And so what you see happening then is the beginning of an understanding of women's rights. And this language of rights comes out of the revolution, and nobody really knows for sure what it means. I mean, we probably know for sure that Thomas Jefferson didn't anticipate enfranchising women or slaves when he wrote the Declaration of Independence. But this idea of rights is very expansive. It has a lot of potential to be applied to a lot of groups. And as, as you get a lessening connection and connection between property ownership and rights, that opens the possibility for, for women voting. But the real change that occurred 
in the understanding of rights happened in the 1790s for women when Mary Wollstonecraft wrote a book. Mary Wollstonecraft lived in England and was responding to the French Revolution and to Thomas Paine's famous work, The Rights of Man. And she wrote her own book about the vindication of the rights of woman published in 1792. And in that, she very bluntly states, we're all human beings, men and women, and rights are universal and belong to all human beings. Why should women be excluded? And that really opened up a whole new conversation about what rights women had, what possibilities women had in terms of education, in terms of careers, in terms of voting and holding public office. And so I think we see an important transformation here when we go from subject to citizen in the meaning of rights, in the meaning of voting, in the meaning of the potential of those who don't own property to participate in the electoral sphere. Well, I have several questions in response to that. That's that's great. So starting, we'll start with this last bit about universal rights, and then we'll we'll work back to uh, property and, and voting and, and such. Beginning with what you've just said about Mary Wollstonecraft and universal rights, it sounds like to me what, what you're getting to is these ideas that are at the heart of what scholars call the liberal state and the liberal conception of rights. Uh, And since the United States, among other governments, is so infused with these small L liberal ideals, many of my students, for one, don't really appreciate what in fact the the liberal state means. Uh, And so could you explain when scholars talk about the liberal state and the emergence of the liberal state and its conception of rights around the American Revolution, uh, what they mean? So the first thing is, it doesn't mean what it means today. It what? doesn't refer to you know, a progressive kind of politics. It doesn't refer to a political agenda of, of that sort. 18th century liberals, and I put it in quotes, probably would be similar to people today that we call libertarians, but even that is anachronistic. So it's, it's probably better to just try and think of it in its own terms. When historians and scholars think about the liberal state, they associate it with John Locke and the idea of natural rights that he wrote about. They think about Adam Smith and the kind of free trade that he espoused. But they also think about freedom of conscience. So liberal, I mean, the Latin root is literally, you know, refers to free. And it was freeing individuals from the constraints of the government, okay? So freeing trade from the constraints of mercantilism, of the, of the heavy hand of the British government, or you know, abolishing religious establishments that forced people to worship one church in one church or one way of believing. And so this idea of liberalism and the liberal state really is a very... Um, Frankly, it's, it's, it's an amorphous concept. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I prefer to talk about concept of the governed or Republican government or. Uh, well, you maybe know. you can, by all means, tell me I'm wrong. But one of the things that I usually emphasize with my students is also liberals emphasize that individuals hold bundles of rights 
Whereas it's not that rights didn't intellectually exist before the liberal state, but that perhaps in other conceptions of liberty, uh, somebody might have rights by virtue of being a member of a town or a member of a group. Whereas in a liberal state, at least in theory, individuals hold certain bundles of rights just by virtue of being a person. And those are supposed to exist outside of government. Okay, well, that's a very interesting point. And again, to understand it in the context of the 18th century, you really have to move beyond our 21st century conceptions of liberalism and the caricatures that we have today. Rights in the 18th century usually had corresponding duties. So when you were a, a citizen of a state, you also had, you had rights, but you also had duties to that state. And for example, men, males would be expected to, you know, serve in the militia or, you know, fight in wars and of course pay taxes. But one of the things again with women and the revolution is, you know, increasingly this idea of when rights were applied to women, you know, what were women's rights? What were women's duties? And that whole notion came to be um, in, in play. But I want to emphasize rights in the 18th century, even in the the thinkers that we associate most with this so-called liberal tradition like Locke and Adam Smith always were accompanied by duties. It Mm -hmm. wasn't a sense of entitlement. It wasn't only what people received from the state or their privileges that they got from the state. It was also what they owed to the state. And I think that's a really key sense of the notion of rights that we've lost today. And so in this changing attitude toward women, this idea that you know women could make a contribution to the state, even if they couldn't vote and hold public office, through raising patriotic citizens by encouraging their husbands to go out and fight for, for the nation and by being educated in a way that encouraged patriotic virtue. So I just want to emphasize that rights and duties were very closely tied together at this point. And it's something that we've really lost today. That's a good point. Circling back to then women and property and the questions of the the significance of this change for them, it's also been argued in some circles, and so uh, I'm interested in your thoughts on this, that uh, because citizens in this late 18th century American context were expected to be independent, we've talked about what that meant, whereas subjects were by very nature inherently all subjects, whether they were a noble man or a servant woman, or even an enslaved woman. All subjects were dependent on somebody and were sort of, in that sense, interdependent is how Kathleen Duvall frames it. And so the argument goes that for some women, particularly elite women, the emphasis on independence in this context of coverture, in particular of making most women inherently dependent on a a male figure, that the emphasis on an independent citizen was therefore singling out women for sort of a particularly negative status because you're either an independent, fully participating citizen or you're not. Ah, yeah. Well, so the issue here is, I think there are, you know, competing political impulses that are occurring after the revolution. And I do think it's correct to to understand subjecthood as encompassing all peoples, including non-white peoples and women. 
So I think that's a, a very good point. I think in a Republican government, once you have citizens, then you have the legislatures, the elected representatives having to decide who is a citizen and who is not. And so the possibilities for exclusion from the polity, from this formal exclusion from the political realm increase. And so in that sense, I, I think it's true to see the shift from subjecthood to citizenship as a potential negative for women. But I do think that there are these countervailing tendencies and that comes from this notion of rights and this notion, you know, the, the, what we call the egalitarian impulses of the American Revolution that are inscribed in the Declaration of Independence that were picked up upon by Thomas Paine and that were seized upon and furthered by the Jeffersonian Republicans. And by latching on to that notion of rights, even if at that time the notion of citizenship was exclusionary, the very idea of rights gave excluded groups a moral weapon with which to protest to the state and to their fellow citizens for inclusion. And so it's true that in a formal way, as subjects, they were, they were included in the polity in a broader way. But I think that as citizens, and the, the, the whole question is, what is a citizen at this time? So mm -hmm. there's, a, there's a strong case to be made that even though women couldn't vote and hold public office, they were considered citizens. Certainly, they had more rights under the law than, say, enslaved people and Native Americans who were actually considered outside the American polity, who were, you know, separate nations by and large, or considered separate nations by and large. So it's a very complicated issue. And I don't like to make blanket statements about <laughs> subjecthood being more inclusive than citizenship. I think what the transition from subjecthood to citizenship did was create this new category of citizen, but along with this notion, these notions of equality and natural rights raised the question that, that Americans debated for the next, yeah, well, we're still debating, you know, who mm. is a citizen and what are the rights of citizens? That's a good point. About that debate, turning to then, okay, so women as citizens versus subjects. One of the things that I love about your scholarship is that you write about in the revolutionary era and before it, how such an important dividing line for, for most people was property. You either have property or you don't. And that women were, with very few exceptions, and we'll get to those exceptions, women by and large did not vote. But that's because they didn't hold property, not because, at least in law, usually they were women. And that it's the American Revolution, in part, that, that really forces this change, right? This reckoning of. So now, all of a sudden, property is not the defining feature to determine full citizenship or even the franchise. What is? One case that I think sits at the heart of a lot of the issues that we've been discussing and that your work talks about is the case of New Jersey, where at least some women were eligible to vote between 1776 and 1807. And that case can potentially tell us a lot. 
Why is that? And why is it that New Jersey did enfranchise some women during those years? Well, this is a fascinating episode that I hope more of your listeners will acquaint themselves with. So each of the 13 colonies, when independence was declared, had to write their own new state constitution. And alone among all the states, New Jersey legislators in 1776 wrote their constitution in a way that was gender neutral, that is that voters were not described as he or male, and that subsequently we know women were actually allowed to vote in New Jersey. Now, this is a really amazing episode because this is a time, as I mentioned before, when a person had to own property to be able to vote. And I said, women couldn't own property. Well, there's actually some exceptions to that. Unmarried women and widows, who are of course unmarried, were allowed to own property. And so what happened in the decades after the American Revolution is that we start to see that white women of property actually started to cast ballots in elections in New Jersey at the state level, the local level, and at the federal level. So they were voting for for governors, they were voting for congressmen, they were voting for their, uh, you know, city mayor. Correct me if I'm wrong, sorry, but the New Jersey voting laws were also race neutral as well at this time. So theoretically, women of color could have been voting, right? Yes, yes. And and certainly we know that African-American males were were voting during this time who were free. So yes, it's a very interesting episode. Now, given the fact that you had to meet a certain property qualification, it wasn't an extremely high property qualification, but you did have to meet it. And that women were not clamoring for the vote at this time. It's likely that the number of women who voted in any given election was not too large. But we do know that dozens, perhaps hundreds of women voted in elections from 1776 to 1807 in New Jersey. Now, how could they vote? Again, since the vote was attached to property, it was an extension of the revolutionary principle of no taxation without representation. Women of property had to pay taxes on their property, just like men. And Richard Henry Lee's sister in Virginia even badgered her brother about why she as a widow of property couldn't vote in Virginia. But in New Jersey, they took that principle of no taxation without representation to its logical conclusion and allowed women to vote. And we know that this was not simply a loophole or an accident using this gender neutral language because in 1790 and 1797, the New Jersey legislature passed laws that's referred to voters specifically as he or she. So we know that the New Jersey legislators in the 1790s and in through the uh, early 19th century acknowledged and accepted and permitted women to vote. And this, this included white women, if any black women could meet the qualification, they could vote. And certainly free blacks who met the qualification could vote. So it was a very broad, franchise. And it was unique among the early states. No other of the 13 first states allowed women to vote. And 
it caused uh, consternation to say the least. It was extremely controversial, both in New Jersey and outside of it. And there was a lot of debate about whether it was appropriate for women to vote. Did they have enough knowledge of politics to vote? Or if they voted, were they in danger of becoming, and this is the phrase used at the time, manly women. There was right. a fear of, of women wearing breeches. And they talked about the petticoat electors in, in disparaging terms. But the point is women were allowed to vote and they did vote. And we have poll lists that show that they voted even as well as articles and newspapers. And so it was an extremely unusual episode. And unfortunately, because it was so controversial, it did come to an end in 1807 when the New Jersey legislature passed a law prohibiting both uh, women and people of color from voting. It's reflective of a larger movement these Jeffersonian Republicans, these Democratic Republicans, the supporters of Thomas Jefferson, who really wanted to increase the political and economic, uh, economic opportunities of ordinary men, were pushing to eliminate all property qualifications for voting. So what happened in 1807 in New Jersey is that there were all these accusations of fraud and corruption in an election that had occurred in the previous year. In fact, in a particular election, there were more voters than there were people in the uh, county. So, mm. you know, there, there definitely were problems, but it probably it was blamed on African-American people and women. And you well, know, didn't people a- accuse, didn't they say, oh, well, men could dress up as women and nobody would really search them because that's indecent. Uh, right, right, right. And, and I yes. believe there were even wild claims about, and then white people could dress up in blackface and pretend to be yes. African-American. And so as a voter security method, we have to do something. <laughs> yes, exactly, okay. exactly. And what's significant here is, so the fraud was on the part of white males, but the most vulnerable communities, the communities that had the least voice and representation, that is the African-Americans and the women were the scapegoats. And so, yes, there was this bargain between the Porters of Jefferson and the Federalists in 1807 in New Jersey, where they passed this law and they actually broadened the franchise for white males. They eliminated the property qualification. So that was a good thing for white males. But They also specifically prohibited and wrote this into law that voting was confined to free white males. And this is symbolic of a larger pattern that we see in these early decades of the 19th century, what I like to call a backlash against the the radical impulses of the revolution, where in voting laws, state legislators try to be much more specific about who can vote and now begin to limit the vote specifically to free white males. Whereas before they didn't necessarily include a gender marker or a race marker. Now, you know, they're broadening the vote for white males, but it's at the cost of, in New Jersey's case, you know, these these women who met the property qualification or the free blacks that met the property qualification. And again, 
I find it a, a kind of scapegoating that is all too familiar to us today. It's an idea that those with the least voice are the easiest to exclude. Did Abigail Adams and Mercy Otis Warren and the other female political commentators, did they remark on New Jersey? We know for sure that Abigail Adams did. She was aware of this experiment in women voting in New Jersey. And she makes a comment in a letter to her sister about if the Massachusetts Constitution had been as liberal as the New Jersey Constitution, she would be able to vote. But she's speaking specifically in that letter about voting for her local minister Nonetheless, she does, she does mention that, you know, she's aware of what's going on in New Jersey, but she's at that point only speaking about being able to vote for a minister. Mercy Otis Warren never mentions the, the episode of women voting in New Jersey. She was an older generation, more about 20 years older than Abigail Adams. And I would say, you know, she pushed the boundaries of women's role but she was always anxious about it. She's always anxious. She was transgressing the line of her sex. That's what she said once. And I think that she was not eager to push women into the electoral realm. Unofficial forms of politics, you know, protesting, boycotting, writing were things I think she would support but voting, I think, would be a, a bridge too far for her. But she was a very strong advocate of women's education and really saw, I mean, and her own life reflected it, you know, that women with sufficient education could be men's equals in the literary realm. Judith Sargent Murray is another interesting case who she wrote a document during the revolution, an essay that was published called on the equality of the sexes, which seems again, very radical to us and was radical for the times, but she too primarily confined her musings to women's intellectual equality, to advocating for women's educational attainment, more educational opportunities for women. And she was very, very strongly supportive of women being able to support themselves financially if they were widowed because she herself found herself in that position and was at a great disadvantage. So I don't think we see a lot of, you know, at least in what we've found so far, a lot of support from other educated women for women voting at this time. And one of the things that is kind of disappointing about this New Jersey experiment is that when women lost the vote in 1807, there was no mass protest, there was no writing campaign. We found no evidence that there was some mass petition drive to reinstate the right to vote for women at this time in New Jersey. So in some sense, it really was a short-lived experiment, but I think it shows the potential that, that people were thinking about the possibilities of women participating directly in the nation's electoral life and political life. And we know that subsequent generation of women's rights advocates, the generation that wrote the Seneca Falls Declaration of 1848, and then, you know, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Susan B. Anthony, 
after the Civil War, knew about this New Jersey experiment and actually referred to it when they attempted to vote in New Jersey, so in 1880. So, you know, I think it set an important precedent, even though it ultimately ended in 1807. That's a good point. And I think you could argue maybe that's why most people don't seem to know what to do with this case, right? Where yes. even even scholars, I mean, yes. when you look at the scholarship on the New Jersey example, it is vanishingly small. I mean, the people who work on it did great work, but like, it's because like, as you said, that it's, there's this odd case where nobody really protests. And so even most people today would say, you know, hooray, go New Jersey. We're very happy with this, but because the voters of New Jersey and even the women voters of New Jersey don't seem to behave in the way that most modern audiences would expect or hope them that they would. So instead it languishes. Uh, which is which is unfortunate because as you well, but I I do think if you see it as part of this wider backlash mm-hmm. against the potential of the revolution to expand rights and privileges for various groups besides white males, I think then it makes more sense. Absolutely right. Absolutely right. This dichotomy that you you bring about, I think that's really key to understand about early American politics between these two early uh, political parties where the federalists who you know include people like Abigail Adams their organizing principle is really that property matters and that hierarchy matters and that maybe property matters more than biology or certainly should be considered alongside of it and then it's the democratic republicans who i think you do uh, as good a job if, as anyone perhaps better that pointing out that increasingly the supporters of Jefferson say, no, what really matters is biology. Right. So let's think about that. You know, I think a lot of us today have this instinctive revulsion against the idea of having to own property in order to be able to vote. And I'm certainly not in favor of that. But I want to understand, (laughs) I want to understand what this transition meant to eliminating property qualifications for voting. John, John Adams was very hostile. He, he, of course, was, you know, the ultimate federalist and mm-hmm. he was very hostile to this idea of eliminating property qualifications because he saw what a can of worms it opened up. To him, property qualifications were sort of a bright line. They were an easy way to differentiate voters from non-voters. He was working on this old idea from Britain of dependence and independence. But if you start saying people have a right to vote, then, as I said before, you have to start deciding who are the people, who are the citizens, who are the voters, and you have to make all sorts of distinctions. And in a famous letter to a colleague of his, he says, oh, that would be terrible because all of a sudden we're going to have to enfranchise women. We're going to have to enfranchise children. I mean, what on what basis can you exclude these people? And we should add, that- he writes this right after he gets a letter from Abigail saying, when you come up with this new code of laws, remember the ladies. And so like, we clearly have to tip our hats to Abigail as being a reason why I think John Adams was the only famous founder who took seriously the idea of women voting, even though it was in the negative. Whereas right. he's writing, right. gosh, he was writing to, it was uh, James Sullivan. 
Sullivan, yes. one of the early governors of Maine, we should point out. And oh, he, good, good. Yeah. And he, so we're getting that, we're getting that home, home reference folks. And he's, he's basically saying, I remember this, my students read it every semester, like just you watch, if you remove the property qualifications, where does it end? The women are going to start saying, you know, just you watch. And of course he's just got that, that letter from Abigail. It's probably sitting on his desk and they've had this exchange. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you got to give him credit because he understood the logic of rights, of yes. natural rights, and he knew where it was headed and he didn't like it. Now yeah. we see the logic of it and we like it. You know, we're glad they got rid of property qualifications. But for him and for many other people at the time, especially these Federalists, these men of property and standing, it was a very scary prospect. And even for a lot of Jeffersonians, it, it was not a tolerable prospect. It, it really violated their sense of women's roles and women's proper sphere and what was, you know, what, what women should be doing. And so, you know, it was a very, very controversial concept. But, but to go back to this idea of what happens when you eliminate property qualifications, I want to think about this in, in a deeper way. So you're saying that rights inhere in the person. And that seems, again, like a, a fantastic idea to us. But then what happens is Americans in the late 18th and early 19th century start saying, well, certain bodies, certain individuals simply don't have rights, these natural rights. So slaves don't have these rights. Then they say women, because of their physiology, because of their anatomy, because of their biology, can't have political rights. And so in a sense, by shifting from individual's property ownership to something that inheres in the person, you're actually making it easier to exclude certain groups from the full benefits of citizenship and participation in this polity. That's a really good point. And it gets to, and, and this is a question that I think I know that you and probably any historian would be very loath to answer with, you know, precision, but we'll, we'll try anyway. So John Adams's letter where he's talking to James Sullivan and he says, just you, just you watch. Uh, I think it's also noteworthy because John Adams deploys different arguments against women voting because he says, well, you might say women shouldn't be able to vote because they are the weaker sex and therefore they're unfit for the business of politics and war. And so that's the sort of sexist argument he makes, right? The biological one. But then he also says, but really the reason why uh, the other argument you could make is that because they don't own property. And then he says that, and we all know that there are some women who are just as capable as men and that women's capability basically is, is determined on their, their property rather than any sort of biological fitness. And yes. so yeah. John Adams is deploying both this older argument of just only property owners can vote and this biological argument against women voting. And I know for many scholars, this is, this is one of those just unending questions. And so to what extent do you, would you say that the American revolutionary era uh, and this backlash that followed it, in what, in what way are these biological arguments for women and African-Americans unfitness for citizenship that are, that are being made with, you know, arguably really renewed force in the early 1800s? 
how new are these biological arguments and how much of these are just sort of latent, not as well articulated sexist beliefs that are coming to the fore that were already there? You need to understand that the 18th century at the peak of the enlightenment, a lot of intellectuals, the philosophers, actually argued in favor of men's and women's equality, but I should qualify this, men's and women's intellectual equality and social equality and uh, spiritual equality. And so the 18th century was actually a high watermark in terms of the way intellectuals at least were thinking about women and very optimistic about women's potential for education. And I should say this is true of what many of them were thinking, not all, but many of them were thinking about, about Black people as well. And, you know, again, coming from Locke in, in the late uh, 17th century down through the 18th century, there's this idea that custom and habit and environment shapes people's potential, that their potential for education, for learning, for political citizenship is not inherent in their bodies, but in their environment. And so if you provide people with education, if you change their environment, then you can bring them up to a level of intellectual achievement and accomplishment that will allow them to participate more fully in a nation's intellectual life, in a nation's uh, political exchange, in a nation's other realms of sociability. And so again, at the ordinary level and at the level of common interaction, was there a, a sort of assumption that women were inferior? Yes, but at the, at the refined intellectual level, the 18th century was an era in which there was an emphasis on women's potential and women's susceptibility to being educated and changed and becoming equal. And they actually use that word, the equals of men in educational achievement and attainment. So the shift that you see occurring by the early 19th century is a shift toward an emphasis on people's potential that's rooted in their bodies. So the argument changes and it's based on what we would call pseudoscientific theories about the body and about anatomy as being destiny, about a person being black as making them intellectually inferior. And Thomas Jefferson, by the way, was one of the proponents of this idea. Or the idea that women, because they were weaker physically, were incapable of taking on the positions of governing or being electors. And so the shift from external characteristics to bodily characteristics that is occurring along with these new sciences, this is a time of growth for the natural sciences. This is a time when in Europe and in America, there's classification of plants and animals and of civilizations and of the sexes and of the races. And what the impact of that, and it isn't fully felt until say the 1830s and 40s and 50s, but it, it happens in this time is a shift toward these ideas of biological essentialism. In other words, that the inferiority of women and also African-Americans is rooted in their bodies and that no matter how much education, no matter how much you change their environment, they are incapable of attaining equality with white males. 
So I think this is a, a really important shift. It's happening not just in the United States, but in Western Europe as well. And it starts to be enshrined in law, in fiction, in you know, ministers' sermons, in the way that Americans think about men's and women's roles. And there's just a sort of new emphasis on the body and inherent differences between the sexes and races that cannot be overcome by changing the environment. And it bears emphasizing that it's the, and my students get surprised by this, that it's the the march of science in this case is not good for egalitarians and that the holdouts tend to be these fairly religious radicals who are arguing that, oh no, people are, are equally created in God's image and so forth. And it's the scientists like Jefferson and then later people who say, no, 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 we can prove it. There are these inherent differences that justify different classes of citizenship. Right, yes. To think broadly, when you talk about the relationship between the American Revolution and this rise in a conversation about women's rights, how would you summarize their relationship after all of your research? I would say that the American Revolution, there were many American revolutions that, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that, you know, different groups, you know, the people, most of us are familiar with the founding fathers went into the revolution to overthrow Britain and to establish a separate nation. But I think that in doing so, they created an ideology, they established a set of principles centered around natural rights and equality that persisted after the revolution and that became a sort of moral guide for the nation against which the nation would measure itself, you know, in terms of equality and natural rights and which groups were included and which groups were excluded. And I would say that there was this moment that lasted until about the 1820s, where in a variety of ways, American men and women, middle-class white American men and women were debating what exact role women should have in this new nation. And they were talking about women's rights. They were talking about women's roles and a lot of possibilities were advanced that included the possibility that women could hold office and vote. And we have this one example in New Jersey where women actually did do that. And even though it was a failure at the time, I think that it showed that women could vote, <laughs> um, that, that the earth would not collapse if women did that. And it did set this precedent. And I do think that the notion of rights then continued to evolve as you got farther away from the revolution and it became detached from the notion of owning property as it became more about the individual and more about entitlements rather than duties. And by the time you get to the 1840s, you have the first woman's rights movement that talks about women's rights in a way that is recognizable to us. And with the 1848 Seneca Falls Convention in upstate New York, 
and with the, the Declaration of Rights that is issued there, you see men and women talking about women's rights in the way that we are familiar with today. That is in terms of the right of women to participate in the same professions as men, to have the same education as men, to vote and hold public office, to be members of the clergy, to not be subjected to the, a different moral standard. I mean, the Seneca Falls Convention was very radical. And again, it was out of step with the majority of people at that time. But this is how fundamental social changes occur, I think. What is perceived as too radical at first just has to percolate beneath the surface and then emerge again at a later time. It's important to understand that change doesn't always go in one direction, that it's, it stops and starts, that there are retrogressions or regressions, that people have to pick up the banner for the kinds of changes that they want in society. And I think especially in terms of the relationship between the sexes, changing women's political rights has implications for women's private roles as wives and mothers. And that's why there's been a lot of resistance to it. And so, you know, it's, it's a long-term prospect, but I think understanding how deep the roots are, give us a better understanding of, first of all, how much has been accomplished today, but how much more work there is to be done. That is a very good point. My final questions for you, what is something that you are working on or have recently come out with that our audience should check out? Okay, well, it's related, but not exactly on this point. It's a project, a digital project called Mapping Early American Elections. And it's a project that I did with some of my colleagues at George Mason University at the Center for History and New Media there. And what we did here was take this wonderful database produced at the American Antiquarian Society of all the records of voting from 1789 until 1825 and map these results in an interactive oh, wow. se series of maps. So these are for congressional elections and some state elections. But this is a wonderful resource for teachers, for people who are just political junkies, for journalists. And you can go to earlyamericanelections.org or just Google mapping early American elections. And what is different about this set of maps from say a published atlas of elections is first of all, it's interactive. Second of all, we have election returns down to the county level or, or town wow. level in a lot of places. And so you can see truly the growth of, of American democracy. You can see changes in voter turnout. You can see changes in district boundaries. You can see changing political practices and you can see the growth of partisanship in a big way. So this is a wonderful tool that I especially hope that teachers use because I think students really like these kinds of visualizations. You can also make your own maps. There are tutorials on this website, Mapping Early American Elections, and ask different questions than we asked. We have the raw data there for the election results. We have the candidates. So it's a very comprehensive site. And I think it really is a window into early American politics that hasn't been available before. Wonderful. 
uh, we will definitely link to that site on the Mainly History Twitter account as well. That's great. What is something somebody else is working on that you think our audience should look into? Well, as it happens, the Museum of the American Revolution has just had a wonderful physical exhibit called When Women Lost the Vote, a revolutionary story about women voting in New Jersey from 1776 to 1807. They have a fantastic online component to this exhibit, When Women Lost the Vote, and you can find it at the American Revolution Museum, and they have wonderful artifacts from women who probably voted. They have a ballot box that was used at this time, and they have representations of women from this time. And most especially, they actually found the voting lists, the poll lists from this time that show women's names who voted in certain places in New Jersey. And so you can actually see the names of individual women who voted in some of these elections. And this is a wonderful find because we knew that women voted before, but we didn't know many of their names. And here we have it. And so it really gives us greater insight into this whole episode of women voting in New Jersey. So that's at the American Revolution Museum. And it's when women lost the vote. Oh, that's great. We will also be sure to link to that exhibit as well on the show's Twitter account. Rosie, thank you so much for joining us. It's been such a pleasure. Hopefully we will speak again soon. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Ian. That's our show. Unlike John Adams, we hope you will, in fact, remember the ladies. And also remember to subscribe to this podcast on your platform of choice. For links to the books mentioned in this episode, and so you don't miss out on all the latest excitement, be sure to follow us on Twitter at Mainly History. Next time, Diana Greenwald of the Portland Museum of Art joins us to talk itinerant painters and vernacular art in early Maine. And I get to indulge my curiosity about painters who were bad at their jobs. That's next time on Mainly History.